Good morning. This morning for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 20 and beginning in verse 25. And I'll be reading this morning from the New American Standard. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. Remember that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know these things. These hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And everything I showed you, that by working hard and in this manner you must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would see his face not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. Uh, it's a great honor and privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, my name is Dustin Drake. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, one of the things we have here is a great group of elders and deacons that lead Calvary. And so I've been asked to speak this morning, and I count it an honor to do so. If you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Before we... Look in God's word this morning. I'd just like to pray and ask that God would open our hearts and minds. Father, I want to thank you for this privilege, this opportunity to share your word. Father, I thank you for uh, your love for us and your grace. I thank you that you've enabled us to come together and worship you. I think of those this morning that are at home watching uh, via the internet. That, Father, that they would still feel part of our group. That they would not feel separated and isolated from us. I pray that your spirit would be there with them this morning, ministering to your word to bring them closer to you, to lift them up and encourage you. I pray, Father, for everyone here this morning, that you would challenge us through your word. That you would encourage us through your word. That you would minister where we're needing it this morning, Father. To bring us closer to you. To make us more like Christ. And I pray, Father, this morning your spirit would fill me. And they would not see me this morning and hear me this morning. But hear from you this morning. I pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, spiritual leadership in the church. Uh, this is a message I've been wanting to share for a while. And... In fact, I've mentioned it several times that I'd like to share this message, but it seems even more appropriate today 
is I believe our nation is suffering from a lack of godly leaders. Men and women of integrity and truth are few and far between. It seems that most people in leadership today are focused mainly on their own agendas and their own success. Instead of seeing the people as being something that they need to be serving, they see the people as something to be used and manipulated in order to achieve their goals in life. Sadly, this mindset seems to have crept into many churches today. Many leaders see the people as a means to an end. Many leaders make decisions based on pragmatism and human wisdom. Fasting and praying, seeking God's leading in a matter, is not even considered when making decisions a lot of times. But I'm telling you today that God is looking for men of faith, women of faith, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit who truly love Him and truly love the people of God. So this morning we're going to look in the book of Acts at the qualifications of godly leaders in the church. Now before you turn me off and say, well, I'm not an elder and can't be an elder in the church, I believe this message has implications for everyone in this body and everyone in the body of Christ. And I think I'll make that point before we're through today. I'd like to direct your attention to Acts chapter 20. And you're thinking, well, why didn't you just go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1 and look at a list of qualifications for elders? Well, it's easy sometimes to go through a list. But when I was teaching through the book of Acts and came to Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20, this passage in chapter 20 really jumped out to me. Because it's Paul addressing a group of men who were elders. And he has a message for them that's very powerful. As we look into this book of Acts, especially chapter 20, we see that Paul calls for these elders. And he has a message for them. What had happened is Acts chapter 19 is Paul had gone into Ephesus and he established a church. In fact, for two years he taught in the school of Tyrannus and established a church. And the word of God became so powerful there. That in Acts chapter 19, it tells us that the word of God went out. In fact, verse 19 says this, that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. From Ephesus, the word of God went out all over Asia. The impact there was so great. In fact, his impact was so great in the city of Ephesus that we all know about the great riot. If you know anything about the word of God, that they worshiped the goddess Diana. And they had a lucrative business making idols and selling them. And so many people were turning to Christ that they were destroying all their, their false, false idols and quit, they were quitting to, to purchase these things and they were like, we're going to lose our livelihood. So this huge riot broke out. In fact, they all went into the uh, main amphitheater at the time which seated about 25,000 people. And only when the magistrate came out and told them, look, if there's anything going on here, it's got to go through the courts. We've got to stop this. That they finally broke it up. Well, it was right after that that Paul decided he would go to Macedonia. So he was going to go back north from there and go through Macedonia again and strengthen the brethren. Go back to all the churches he'd started there. And so after about four months, Paul decided during that time in Macedonia that he was going to go to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. So he gathered up his group of men. And they started to go back, heading back down around the coast and going to shoot straight back down to Jerusalem so he could be there for Pentecost. So they're coming down the coast of what is today Turkey 
and they get to Medellin, and then they sail right past Ephesus and they come to Miletus, a little town about 30 miles south of Medellin. And then Paul all of a sudden says, look, I need to speak to the church, the elders of the church at Ephesus. So he sends for them. He stops there and he sends for them. And they make the journey. It doesn't tell us how they got there, but they came 30 miles from Ephesus back down to Miletus to meet with Paul. And he has a tremendous message for them. Now, if you think about it, Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. He bypasses Ephesus because he said he was trying to get to Jerusalem. He was in a hurry. And then he stops and he says, I need to talk to these men. So whatever he's going to tell them in this passage is extremely important. Extremely important for elders. And that's another reason why I chose this passage, because I think what he tells them here is so important for us today in the church. So let's look at verse 25 in chapter 20. He says, And indeed I know that that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves. And to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul is going to preach to these, talk to these men this morning. And I want to talk about spiritual leadership and look at three things this morning. Three things. We're going to look at three D's this morning. We're going to look at the designation of these men, their names or titles. We're going to look at their duties, and then we're going to look at their desire. So... The first thing he talks about when he talks about these men, I would direct you all the way back to verse 17. It says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. The first thing we see about these men who were leaders is they're called elders. In the Greek, this is the word presbyteros. If it sounds familiar, our brethren, the Presbyterians, get their name from this word. It's used about 66 times in the New Testament, and it speaks of age or maturity. Age or maturity. The first thing you see about leaders in the church is they need to be mature. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily you need to be old geezer like me or even older. It's talking about our spiritual maturity. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, when he's talking about the qualifications, it says he should not be a novice or a new convert because he will fall into a reproach and snare of the devil. Spiritual maturity is not necessarily come with age. You can be 70 years old and still be a babe in Christ. You can be 25 years old and be mature in Christ. You said, well, how can you say that? Well, one of these men that was traveling with Paul was named Timothy. And Timothy later actually becomes the chief elder or pastor of the church at Ephesus. It's interesting that that Paul is training him even now. If you look in Acts chapter 20, you see in verse 4, I believe it is, where he's got this group of men with him. Uh, and I'll just read this list. And it says, so, so, And so Peter of Brea accompanied him also to Asia. And also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And, of course, there's one more that man with him. He says, These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. There's Luke in that mix, too. So Paul had about eight, eight men that were traveling with him that he had picked up along the way. And he was training them for leadership. So this was something Paul was doing in his own life. Now, what are some of the essentials we look for when we're determining if a person is really spiritually mature? 
Well, I think we can go back and look at the life of Paul. Now, Paul, there's a big debate whether or not Paul was ever considered an elder. And I'm not going to even get into that this morning. But Paul was an apostle. So Paul was a leader among leaders. And so the same characteristics we see Paul, we should see in the lives of so many other men. Go back to Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 again. He says this, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that in the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So I want to look at some things here about Paul. He says, you know what manner I always lived among you. He says, you know how I lived among you. You saw me. I was there for two and a half, nearly three years. How did he live among them? First of all, we see him serving the Lord with all humility. If you're looking for someone and looking for spiritual maturity, you need to see, first of all, a heart of service. If they don't have the heart of a servant, they're not mature. Paul, who was chief among apostles at this time, I would say, had a heart of serving others. And so when we look for spiritual maturity, you need to look and see, are these people serving? Are they serving the Lord? Are they serving the body of Christ? Do they have a ministry they're involved in? Those that really have maturity in their lives see the value of service. Secondly, he says, serving the Lord with humility, all humility. Humility. We see a servant's heart. We see a humble heart. What is humility? Well, humility is not to think too lowly of yourself. Humility is not to think too highly of yourself. Humility is really not thinking about yourself at all. You're not hung up on yourself when you're humble. What else do we see here? Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. How? Look at verse 20. How I kept back nothing that was helpful. We see a committed heart. Paul was committed to the people of God and to the word of God. And he said, I didn't keep back anything. He also says, I declared unto you the whole counsel of God. He said, I didn't, I didn't hold anything back. I didn't hold myself back. I didn't hold the word of God back. He said, I gave you everything that was helpful. So a person that's mature, they're committed. They're committed to the word of God. They're committed to the people of God. And then look at this also. He says, I kept nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. What does it tell me about Paul when it says he went from house to house? It tells me that Paul had a relational heart. Paul really cared about people. A lot of times people think of Paul as this hard-driving man, man who really didn't take time for people, who just preached the gospel and got beat up and thrown in jail and just got back up and kept going. But Paul was a relational man. You say, how do I know that? Well, if you go back to chapter 19, 
In verse 4, he had eight men traveling with him that he would picked up in all these different cities that he'd gone to. You say, how do I know that Paul was a relational man? Look at verse 37 in chapter 20. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Saw him most of all because he said, I, you'll see my face no more. These men loved Paul. And Paul loved, he loved man. He loved people. He loved the people of God. You know, it's interesting. When I went to Bible college years ago, they told pastors, you weren't supposed to do that. You really weren't supposed to have a relationship with your people. You were just to show up and preach the word of God and be kind of a distant from them. And you could do professional counseling and stuff if you chose to. But you didn't really have friends in the congregation. That was something you weren't supposed to do. And I thought back on that and I thought, how foolish that is. That's where your friends should be is in the house of God and the church of God. And so Paul went house to house teaching the word of God. So he had a relational heart. And then notice this. He had a courageous heart. Look at verse 22 and 23. And see now, I go bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing, the th- not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying to me that change and tribulation await you. Now, I don't know. <laughs> change and tribulation. I don't know what's going to happen, but these people keep telling me that if I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to end up in change and I'm going to end up in tribulation. But Paul said, I'm going. Because Paul had a courageous heart. He would not back down from what God told him to do. Even though he wasn't sure what was going to happen. He was brave. And that bravery came from his knowing Christ and his relationship with him. And then he had an obedient heart. Look at verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry I receive from the Lord. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be obedient no matter what happens. This is the kind of people we need to look for. People that, that are courageous. People that are obedient. People that love people. People that are committed to the Word of God and to other people in the body of Christ. And what else do we see? And this is going to the end of the chapter. And I like this. Verse 34, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. And what Paul is talking about is he had a tent-making ministry. So they wouldn't have to be burdened to churches. When he went in, he would work in the evenings and at nights a lot of times, and they would make tents and sell them. So he didn't have to take money. And even the men that were with him, the eight men that were with him, they said, we provided for our own needs because we didn't want to be a burden to you. For I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that it is more blessed to give than to receive. What did Paul have? He had a generous heart. Did he have to work? No, he, he didn't have to work. He could have taken from the churches. But he wanted to be a blessing. He wanted to be generous to others. And then the last thing I want you to see about spiritually mature people, is they have a consistent heart. Going all the way back up to verse 18, he says that from the first day, you know, I always lived among you. In what manner I always lived among you. I always lived among you. Paul was consistent. Paul didn't vacillate. He didn't throw a fit one day and go off on everybody. 
He was the same day after day after day. He was consistent in his walk with Christ. These are some of the characteristics I see of a spiritually mature person. They have a heart of service, humility, commitment, relationships, courageousness, obedience, generosity, and consistency. When we look for spiritual maturity in people, those are the things, some of the characteristics we need to look for. Not what kind of job they have. Not what kind of house they live in. Not what kind of successes they have in the world. But what are they like in the body of Christ? Spiritual maturity. So that's the designations of an elder. It speaks of their spiritual maturity in Christ. Let's look and see another phrase. Going back to verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He calls them overseers. This is the word sometimes translated bishop. And it's the word episkopos. Some of our other brethren in Christ get their name from this, the Episcopalians. And the word episcopos means a man charged with a duty of seeing that things are done correctly by others. This person is a guardian. They're an overseer. Leadership is someone who takes responsibility for the well-being of others. They're overseeing for the Lord the well-being of others. If you flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and you don't have to flip there, but I'm going to read this passage. He says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. And I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice and do nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. What's he telling us there about elders? Is those who labor in the word and in doctrine, those who are teaching and preaching the word of God, those who are sharing the word of God with others, we're to hold them in high regard. When he talks about double honor, that has to to do with being paid. But it's not necessarily just being paid. It's looking at them in in high regard, holding them up. Not as perfect people, not as a pope or anything, but holding them and admiring them. And you dare not speak against them. Unless it's something that's really true. It needs to be something that's verified. And if you know an elder in the church that's sinning, if you know that I'm sinning, I need to be called out. There needs to be verified by two or three witnesses, and I need to be rebuked publicly. Not even privately. Elders are held at a very high regard. And their office is a very high regard. And so he tells us, and he says, don't lay hands on man, anyone hastily. What's he saying? Don't put anyone in the office of an elder in a church hastily. Go back and make sure they're spiritually mature. Because if you want them to be overseers in the church, if you want them to be leaders, they have to be men of integrity. They have to be men that are spiritually mature. So first of all, it takes about leadership who takes the responsibility for others and for their welfare. And that's what that means by overseeing the flock. It has to do with care and concern for others. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 13. This is another passage where he talks about elders. And there's a couple of verses I want to read about this because this is, a, this is something that 
you don't hear about much in the church. In verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13, it says this, Remember those who rule over you. And I don't like the word rule. I like to better translate that lead. Remember those who have the lead over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Wow, that's very powerful. You need to consider them. And they need to be people. We need to put people in this place of elder that when we look at them, we say, I'd like to follow them. I believe they're the real deal. I could pattern my life after them. It's a heavy thing to be an elder. Look at verse 17. Obey those who rule over you or lead over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do it with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. People we put in spiritual leadership who are spiritually mature, the body of Christ needs to be submissive to their leadership. Because we put them in a place of leadership to lead the church. So don't fight against them. If they're walking with the God and they're, they're godly men, don't fight against them. And then what does he say in verse 24? Greet those who rule over you and all the saints. An elder is an overseer. Someone that God has put in the church to oversee the church, to help lead the church. And he gives us some very strict qualifications for that we're going to look at in just a minute. So, he calls them elders, he calls them overseers. What else does he say? Go back to verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He also tells them to shepherd the flock. This is a word poimeneo. The base word means a flock. This word means to tend the flock or to feed the flock or to nourish the flock. This is where we get our word pastor. Elder, bishop, pastor. They're all the same thing. They're all the same thing. Pastoring is the shepherding role of the flock. This speaks of their ability to teach the word of God. Going back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it says they must be able to teach. Titus 1.9, when he's speaking of qualification, says that they are holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who are contradicting the word of God. People that are put in places of leadership as an elder, they need to be able to teach the word of God. And, and they have to have that ability. They should be gifted in that. They are, Old King James says, they're apt to teach. They have a gifting in that. This also speaks of their activity of teaching. Not only should they have the ability to teach, they should be involved in teaching. Now, does this mean that they need to be preaching on Sunday morning? Do all elders have to be preachers? No. But they do have to have a ministry of teaching in their lives. They need to be teaching their families, first of all, and foremost. But they need to have a ministry where they're teaching others in small groups or somewhere, sharing the word of God. That needs to be part of their lives. Because Paul said, you need to feed the flock of God over which God has made you overseers. So you need to have that ability, if you're going to be an elder in the church, to feed people through the word of God. And that First Timothy passage, or excuse me, Titus passage says you've got to know the word of God so good that you can rebuke those, you can exhort those, you can correct those who are contradicting themselves. In the Word of God. And that goes on a lot today in, in, uh, in churches. So we've looked at their designations. Now we're going to look at their duties. 
the duties of an elder. Go back to verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves. The first duty of an elder is being. Being. This word take heed means nurturing or tending to your own self or paying attention to your own selves. As a leader in the church, you cannot impart what you do not possess. In other words, if I don't have a walk, a close walk with Christ, all my teaching is just head knowledge. It might be great, but it's not helping anyone. I've got to be able to not only teach them the doctrine of the Word of God, but teach them how to walk with God. And so I've got to first and foremost make sure my life is what it's supposed to be. That I'm actively seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. A good friend of mine, he's sitting right back there. We, several years ago, we were, we, we, we were studying a book called The Disciplines of Grace. And one of the things that really hit us in that book, that everything in our ministry needs to flow out of our lives and our relationship with Christ. And if we don't focus on that, and we don't build that, then we're just teaching stuff that's not a reality in our lives. And we're, what, we're the big H word, the hypocrite. Because, and, and we're setting ourselves up to fall. Pastors, we need to make sure in the church that our pastoral staff has the time to tend to their own relationship with Christ. Sometimes we put so much on pastors that they're running around putting out fires 24-7. They don't have time for themselves. They don't even have time for their family. And, and, and we've tried to at Calvary to make sure that my son-in-law has that time for himself and his family. That we as the elder board take up some of those responsibilities and duties so everything doesn't fall back on him. But the rest of us elders need to be taking care of ourselves too. We need to be making sure that we're walking with Christ and we're the real deal in our own lives. So first of all, you've got to be tending to your own self. And then secondly, overseeing the flock of God. I wanted you to turn over to another passage this morning. This is another one of my favorite passages. This is 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to read four verses. And I've got to hurry. I've got to hurry or I'm going to run out of time. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 says, The elders who are among you I exhort... I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but by being examples of the flock, that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Notice, elders, overseer, shepherd. There's only two offices in the church. There's elders and there's deacons. And the main difference between elders and deacons is elders are committed to teaching and ministering in the Word of God, and deacons are more in the service aspect, the physical service aspect of the body of Christ. Both are godly men, and both are greatly needed. But elders need to be shepherding the flock. And what does he say about that? Feeding the flock of God, not by compulsion, not for dishonest gain, not as being lords over those but by being examples. That goes back to my first point. You've got to be right before you can do right. And we lead by being examples. This means guidance and direction for the church and people in their, in their own lives. This means protection from false doctrine, false teachers, and besetting sins. Paul tells us in this passage in Acts chapter 20 that there would be people that would come in 
trying to destroy the flock, trying to lead them astray, trying to turn them aside. Third thing is he tells you to feed the flock or shepherd the flock. That means feeding others the word of God. When it comes to shepherding, how do we shepherd? Let me share three things. First of all, it's feeding them the word of God. We as shepherds have to know the word of God to be able to teach the word of God. And I will say something about the men on the elder board. I've served on a lot of boards in the years of my life in ministry. We have one of the best elder boards I've ever served on. We have men on there that are highly trained in the Bible. We have men on there that, are, that show deference to each other, that show humility to each other. When they disagree, we're able to talk to each other civilly. I tell you, there's a great group of men that lead this church, and it's a pleasure to serve with them. I love each and every one of them. But first of all, you feed the Word of God. Then you're praying for people regularly. And then you're spending time investing in their lives. There's a reason that Jesus is called the chief shepherd. And elders are told to be shepherding. Shepherding. If you study a shepherd in the Oriental culture, they knew every one of their sheep by name. They had a name for every sheep. And did you know they could all take their, shepherd, their sheep out, different shepherds, into the fields? And a shepherd had a call. And when he gave his call, his sheep heard his voice. And when he started walking, they followed him. Because they knew that he loved them, and he cared for them, and he protected them. Shepherding. It's interesting, when you look at these three terms I talked about earlier, elder, bishop, or overseer, and then shepherd. The first one is an adjective. That describes what he's supposed to be older. He's supposed to be mature. The second one is a noun, where it says he's an overseer. That's kind of his position or title. And the third thing is a verb, shepherding. This is actually shepherding the flock. That's what he's supposed to be doing, shepherding the flock. So that brings me to my last point, the desire of elders. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, If any man desires the office of an elder, he desires a good thing. But I'm telling you, the desire of an elder must be from God. It must come from God. Notice, if you go back to this passage, it says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. If you're going to be an elder in a church, you need to be called. Your desire is to know Christ and to serve the Lord. You need to tend to yourselves. His desire is to see the body of Christ edified. Notice that Paul said, I didn't hold anything back. I declared to you the whole counsel of God. Why? He wanted to see the body of Christ glorified and edified. Number three, his desire was to love God and God's people. And they and Paul did love people. And they loved him. I can't get over that end of the passage. It says, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. The New American Standard says they wept loudly. Saw him most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. But they accompanied him to the ship. All right. I've got application. And I'm, I've got a few more minutes. So that's good. So I want to talk one thing else about shepherds. And this is just to throw you in there. I'm going to go back 
verse 29, for I know this, because I have such a great illustration of this. I got, I've got to go back. I was trying to cut this out, but I've got to go back. I've got time. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also for among yourselves, men will arise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you, warn everyone night and day with tears. There are so many isms and problems in the body of Christ today. And that's why you need godly men who know the word of God. Who know the truth. So they can spot the errors. There are so many errors right now in America theologically. There are so many movements that are gaining ground that are totally unbiblical. Just to name a few of them, there's hyper-grace movement, there's the Jewish roots movement, there's the new apostolic reformation movement, there's a prosperity gospel movement. They're all sweeping across our country. There's a word of faith movement. And in, in, in all honesty, and I know I'm probably going to offend some people, especially those if you're watching on, on uh, live stream or seeing this later, a lot of those movements are totally off the wall spiritually. You know, I walked outside this morning and I found a, a can of bear mace. I got this for the grandkids. No, not really. I didn't get this for the grandkids. I got this because Karen and I are going uh, backpacking in Colorado in the first week of September, and she's afraid of bears. I told her I would just fight it off with a knife in my bare hands. But that didn't seem to breed much confidence in her, so we got bear mace instead. I didn't wonder if this would work on the grandkids, but no, I'm not going to use it on the grandkids. But this is a fight off the bear in case you're faced with a bear you can't take a gun in the Rocky Mountain National Park. can't take a knife. knife would not probably do much against a big black bear or brown bear. But this is supposed to stop them. It shoots up to 35 feet. Well, that's why we have elders in the church, to protect the flock. And elders who know the Word of God can spot the error and deliver those who are getting caught up or carried away by these things. And I'm telling you, these things are very deceptive. When I first looked at the hyper-grace movement, I agreed with 90% of what it taught. 90% of it, I, 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 I taught that myself. It was the last little 10%, the part that, that let people go off the cliff from being someone who walked with Christ to someone who said, let us sin that grace may abound. And that's where a lot of them ended up. And that's where it wasn't intended to go there, but that's where it went. But I studied that movement, I got into it, and I said, okay. When I had some people going off into it, I was able to sit down with them and go through ten pages of notes and say, this is why this is not biblical. This part is biblical, this is not. So, what is the application? Well, first of all, Calvary Bible Church, we as members have the honor and responsibility both to nominate and confirm elders. You are the one that, that essentially... Puts men in the place of being elders here. So you need to look at the man that you nominate and the man that you vote for. Do they meet these qualifications? That's, that's a big responsibility. We have modified elder rules. So the, rule, the elders here aren't total, just make other decisions. We have congregations that votes on many of these things. And so as elders, we receive our authority both from God and from the congregation, the people we serve. We're servants of the people. So you have that responsibility. Secondly, as leaders in our homes, men need to be striving to be mature in Christ and to lead like elders. 
You may not be an elder at church, but you can be an elder in your household. You can lead in maturity. You can lead in taking your family in the Word of God and ministering to them in the Word of God. You can be the, you can be like that at home. You can be the elder at home. You can be the shepherd at home. You should be the shepherd at home. Third, young ladies, this is for you this morning. You want a godly husband? You need to look for a husband that has these qualifications. Not how good looking he is, not how successful he is, but you need to ask yourself when you watch this young man, does he have the heart of a servant? Does he have a heart of humility? Is he committed? Is he obedient? Is he generous? Does he have courage? That's what you need to look for in the heart of a young man. All the other stuff. Ask yourself this. Does he value relationships? What's his relationship with his mother and father like? What's his relationship with his brothers and sisters like? That tells you a lot. Is he consistent? Those are some of the things you need to look for when you're looking for a husband. Number four, we need to pray for our elders and trust our elders. Pray for our elders and trust our elders. We're just men. Some person says, well, you've got to be blameless. Because the Bible says that elders must be blameless. I ask you a question. How many people are blameless? Pastor Harvey talked about it this morning a little bit. In and of ourselves, none of us are blameless. If you look at my life enough, or just go ask my wife or kids, because they'll tell you, I'm not blameless. That means I'm not perfect. So what does it mean to be blameless? One time I was sitting with John MacArthur and a group of young men preparing for ministry, and they asked him, what does it mean to be blameless? And his answer surprised me, because he said, none of us are really blameless. He said, but how does the congregation see you? Do they believe you're the real deal? Do they believe that you love Jesus Christ? Do they believe that you're trying to walk with the Lord? Do they look at you and say, I know Dustin, I know these other men are not perfect, but I want my life to be like that. I could, I, I could follow them. That's what it means to be blameless. It's when people look at you and think, wow, I believe they're the real deal. That's the kind of leaders we need in the church. It doesn't mean perfection. If you're looking for perfection, you're not going to find it. I'll close with this one story. I was doing a marriage study by a guy named Eggerites called Love and Respect. And he, Dr. Eggerites tells a story one time of he's talking to this lady, and she's really just disappointed with her husband. She's ready just to leave him. And so he says, well, tell me about your husband. She said, uh, uh, is your husband honest? She said, oh, yes, to a fault. He always tells the truth. Does your husband work hard? Oh, yes, he's one of the best employees at work. He supports us. He takes care of all of our physical needs. He said, okay. And he started going through all this list of, well, is he verbally abusive to you or the children? Oh, no, he never says an unkind word, really. You know, he loses his temper every once in a while, but most of the time he's, he's very, very consistent in that. And so he went through all these things, and he looked at her and said, ma'am, what are you looking for? Perfection? Sometimes in the body of Christ, we expect people to be perfect. There are no perfect leaders except for Jesus. But when it comes to blameless, ask yourself those leaders. Do they demonstrate those characteristics of spiritual maturity? 
Are they actively involved in serving the Lord and ministering in the Word of God? And do they have a desire to serve God in that capacity? And if they do, those are the kind of men we need to nominate for both elders and deacons. I challenge you with that. And for you that that are not serving in that role of elder or deacon, men, you need to be that kind of elder at home. You need to be that kind of leader at home. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for being in your house this morning, being gathered together as the body of Christ. And I hope I've challenged, I hope I've encouraged people at Calvary to, first of all, pray for our leaders. Pray for the elders and deacons of our church. No, we're not perfect. And yes, sometimes we make mistakes. Help us to have grace and admit when we do so and to correct those things when we make mistakes, Lord. And I pray they'd show us the same grace that we show so often in the body of Christ when, when people say hurtful things to those in leadership and don't, don't really even know, Father, what they're saying. Help us have that same grace. Raise up godly leaders here at Calvary and in your churches around the world, Father, and in our nation, Father. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.